You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. My name is Damian Paletta. I'm deputy business editor, and I'm honored to be here today to have a conversation with you about the future of work and the role workers will play in shaping their industries going forward. The pandemic had a huge impact on workers. Millions of people lost their jobs in February, March, and April 2020, and the workforce they returned to was much different a few months later, particularly for people who had jobs stocking shelves, working in restaurants, and doing things like caring for the poor and elderly. On top of that, a surge in inflation drove up the costs of things like gas, housing, and groceries, compounding the economic consequences for these workers. And this all fed into inequalities that had been building over decades, making it harder for people to attain the American dream. I'm honored to be joined today by Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, who has spent his career in public service working on a lot of these issues and talking to workers. And so, Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks, Damien. I very much look forward to this. And thanks for the introduction. Great. And also, I wanted to invite our viewers to join the conversation as well. You can tweet us your questions and comments at Post Live. Um, I'm also honored to be joined today by Alana, who's going to be providing ASL translation for this discussion. And as part of that, I also would like to tell the audience a little bit to give a visual description of myself for those who are um, following along. I'm a white male um, wearing a blue blazer, brown hair, brown eyes, a white shirt, and a tie, sitting in front of a backdrop of the newsroom. And Senator, I wonder if I could ask you to provide a, a, a visual description of yourself for our audience as well. Um, I've never been asked to do that, but sure. I, uh, my name's Sherrod Brown. I, uh, my gray hair goes with my gray suit, I guess. And I sit in from in my office, and I sit in front of um, two busts. One is of FDR, whom um, obviously people know who that is. My, the other bust I sit in front of, the other statue, um, is, uh, is Pope Leo. The 13th. He was the labor pope, the first internationally known figure that spoke about unions and workers. He was the third longest serving pope, I think. And I, I'm, I'm a Lutheran, not Catholic, but I just admire very much. And he kind of coined the term dignity of work about 120 years ago, a term uh, popularized much more by Dr. King, but mostly forgotten in a term that I think symbolizes who we are, who we should be as a nation. Senator, I think that context is, is really great. And actually, when I started covering you uh, many years ago, you were just joining the Senate Banking Committee. And I was coming from a background of covering banking. And I remember other reporters pointing to you and saying, you know, he is going to bring a different perspective to this conversation. A lot of these lawmakers on the committee were talking about the interests of banks. And you were really, you know, focused on the interests of workers. And so you, you have a background in public service, you know, talking to workers um, in Ohio. Manufacturing has obviously been big in Ohio for many years. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the kinds of things you've been hearing from workers back when you started in public service to, compared to what you're hearing now. How has, you know, the discussion changed? Yeah, thank you for your fresh approach to every question you've asked so far. And unusual questions, but incisive and, and should get me to, I hope, say marginally interesting things. When I joined that committee, it was just called the Senate Banking Committee. And frankly, as long as Republicans chaired it, which was most of those years until 20, uh, till January, till the special election in January, January 5th of 2021. And, and it was just referred Senate Banking, the Banking Committee. The full name is Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs. We have introduced in that committee um, issues that are really important to people's lives, housing, public transit, um, all the issues that come around that, protecting uh, Americans in the workplace. And we found ways to do that and the dignity of work comes into a lot of our discussions. But um, that that uh, the committee for far too long has just been a sort of an outpost for the banking, for the banking uh, lobby and the banking community. We have done hearings. We're gonna bring the bank CEOs um, to the hearing to the committee um, later this month, the six or seven CEOs of the biggest banks. Um, we have had a number of committee hearings about housing, something that unbelievably wasn't done in the past. And we know that that housing is about as important an issue for, for one, one of the, I was speaking with Senator Ron Wyden last night, um, chair of the Finance Committee, and he had pointed out an article in the Atlantic Monthly about, about life expectancy shrinking in this country. 
um, while it's starting to go back up around the world. And, and the Atlantic article, according to Ron, and I haven't read it yet, he sent it to me, is that um, the lack of decent housing is a big part of people's life expectancy, of the decline in life expectancy in this country. The, not, not just homeless people, but the anxiety so many people face that last week of the month when they really do choose between their rent and and food or stuff for their kids, but they really don't choose because, as Matthew Desmond said, the author of Evicted, um, the rent eats first. So if you don't if you don't pay your rent, everything else goes wrong, and that's um, that affects that affects our society, affects life expectancy, all of that. So this committee's charge is how do we how do we rehabilitate in a sense housing in this country so it's affordable? It's, it's cheaper in my state than it is on the coast, but it's pretty damn expensive to to Clevelanders and in Mansfielders where I grew up and it's, it's the, the availability is not what it should be. So we have a lot of work to do, private and public sector work to do on building affordable housing. Senator, when you, you know, when you said the pandemic began, obviously it was a very scary event, you know, for our health, but the millions of people who were laid off quickly, I'm sure that caught your attention and the government, you know, gave tremendous support in the form of stimulus checks, unemployment benefits and other um, fiscal assistance that was really a, a band-aid to kind of get us through the crisis. I wonder if you think that the structural reforms were put in place that needed to be put in place so that, you know, the workers are on a better footing going forward, or if there's still a lot more that needs to be done as we look to the have this conversation about the future of work. Well, the underpinning of all of this is dignity of work means hard work pays off for everyone, no matter who you are, where you live, what kind of work you do. One job is as a friend of mine in Nevada said, one job should be enough that workers shouldn't have to cobble two or three jobs together to make a decent living. And I guess I said, everything goes wrong if you don't have, you can't afford a place to live. And one of the reasons that I, that I consider the best day of my work life um, was on March 6, 2021, when we passed um, the big sort of omnibus recovery bill um, included in that some pension help for workers who had lost pay, a number of things. But fundamentally, the big thing was the child tax credit. Uh, mm -hmm. Ninety percent of children in my state, their families benefited. It dropped the poverty by by the I, great plaudits to the Biden administration, Secretary Yellen. From, I remember as soon as that passed, as soon as the president signed it, eight days later or so, I called Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, and said, "Let's work with the Trump nominee, the Secretary, the head of IRS." Um, a fellow named Reddick, who had done a very good job and get these checks out. And she did it by July 1st. And within three months, three checks out uh, for those for those um, 60 million children, their families, uh, the poverty rate dropped 40 percent. Unfortunately, every Republican voted against it and we couldn't get the 51 votes, the 50 plus the vice president votes to to um, to reenact it, but we're going to. That is that is mission number one to me, and that will that will make a huge difference in all of these things: life expectancy, affordability of housing, uh, dignity of work, and that on top of uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and chips. These are reforms to put workers first and to come up with a new industrial policy. And I I remember as a kid, I won't go into details unless you want to explore it. What 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 industrial America looked like when I was in high school. Um, and what industrial America looks like now. And that's a big reason um, that, that uh, we see this huge differential, the rich getting richer and the middle class shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And I just wanted to follow back on the child tax credit. I hadn't heard that before. You said you're going to continue to fight for its extension. Is that something that could happen, you know, after the midterm elections? Or how do you envision that playing out? If I, if I had any say over it, it would happen tomorrow. Um, I have some say over it. I'm working with my colleagues um, I think there we will, you know, I'll, I'll put it this way. Uh, no more big, no more tax breaks for big corporations and the wealthy unless the child tax credit's with it. And I will, you know, I will lay down in front of the bulldozer on that one. We're going to do whatever we have to do to make sure that happens. And that's what makes me optimistic because I know, I know the, the lobbyists like, you know, like, um, uh, like hawks sitting ready, ready, ready for their prey, swooping down, um, wanting those tax breaks. They're always there every end of the year. They're looking for big tax breaks for the largest corporations, the richest people in the country. Um, we stop them without the child tax credit. And they want they want that everything from um, uh, uh, I mean, any 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 kind of uh, research development things that I, I agree with, too, sometimes. But child tax credit's got to stand front and center. 
So one of the things that we saw, obviously, last year that was really disruptive and interesting was this great reassessment. Um, some people called it the great resignation, but the people were quitting jobs that they didn't like and taking jobs that they liked where they get better pay, better benefits, better flexibility. Obviously, um, there's been a lot of manufacturing focus in Ohio and the jobs there. Do you see manufacturing benefiting from this kind of worker reevaluation of their you know, career? Or does manufacturing need to do a better job of showing workers that these careers are appealing and have long-term benefits? Well, yes and yes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's the appeal of them, but they're not as appealing as used to be. And let me, let me just kind of illustrate a story. I, I, there yeah. in my junior high school was Johnny Appleseed Junior High. Johnny Appleseed spent a lot of time, at least the myth of Johnny Appleseed in North Central Ohio near the family farm I worked on and all that. But I walked the, the halls at Johnny Appleseed Junior High School with the sons and daughters of elect electrical workers from Westinghouse, auto workers from GM, rubber workers from Mansfield Tire, machinists from, uh, from Tap and Stove, and then the sons and daughters of a whole lot of building trades, carpenters, electricians, um, plumbers and pipe fitters, millwrights who uh, kept these fan manufacturing plants up and running and in, in decent maintenance shape. And, and those jobs by my high school years, and then certainly within 10 years after that, many of those jobs went away. They went away because lobbyists in this place um, lobbied Congress for uh, tax cuts and for trade agreements that essentially encouraged those companies to go overseas so they could exploit cheap wages. So the lobbyists got what they wanted. Too many elected officials went along with it, and we saw this deindustrialization of our country. We saw these working class jobs disappear. There were still jobs. There were jobs at half the wages oftentimes. So this industrial policy, the, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the Buy America provisions and infrastructure, and the infrastructure bill, bipartisan infrastructure bill, all, all that will contribute to a, a more of a reindustrialization America. And at the same time, there's more support for unions in this country than there's been than there have been I think since those days when I was at Johnny Appleseed Junior High School and that means that more and more of these jobs are going to be organized I've worked on organizing drives in Starbucks in Cleveland Columbus Cincinnati you ain't seen nothing yet we're going to see more and more of that um, I walk picket lines I met I mean I, I, a lot of us are doing a lot of those things because we know that overwhelmingly the American public is more supportive of unionization. So these jobs, they become union. They're making things. We reindustrialize, um, bring many of these these companies back, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna see a stronger, a growing middle class. And that's that's the goal I think most of us have. I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, it, the polling data is astounding at about how much more popular union joining unions is now. You know, what do you think gave that such a shot in the arm? And, you know, a lot of conservatives, Republicans even support, you know, uh, stronger unions now in this country. What changed in the past two years to make unions so much more popular, even though the number uh, of people in unions isn't as high? Yeah, I'll, I'll illustrate it with a story. I, I um, as a young man in my office um, who's engaged, uh, they grew up in, they both grew up in Youngstown. Uh, I don't know, I, Matt, I don't know his, um, his fiance, but he's talked to me about their parents. His father works in a steel plant, does almost identical work to her father. Her father carries a union card, his father doesn't. They work, as I said, in more or less competitive kinds of comparable uh, sorts of plants. And he just talks about what she tells him about growing up with, um, you know, with, with having enough. And he talks about his growing up, we never really quite had enough. And he is such a strong believer in unions. He probably would be anyway, just his background and all. But when he makes that contrast and sees, and more and more people are making that contrast, more and more people, I mean, the right wing always is going to go after unions and hates unions because it, 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 it diminishes the power of the corporate elite. I understand that. Um, but that, so there's always, there's always, Many in the media, and the media has a, I mean, I, I don't think there's media bias much in this country, but I do think that editors and newspapers all over the country have an anti-union bias because they're management, and that's reflected in the editorial pages of from the Wall Street Journal to the Cleveland Plain Dealer and so what. But um, the fact is that more and more people are hearing more and more stories that carrying a union card matters in their lives and makes their standard of living better. And, uh, and we're seeing that something we'd be just more, more focus on that today than, than I've seen in, in my career. 
one of the things that there's been a lot of discussion about too is the you know college degree and whether that's a big key to opening the doorway to the future of work. Do you think that Congress has done enough and the White House has done enough to create more opportunities, more on-ramps for workers who maybe feel like the four-year degree isn't for them? I mean, I know this is a thing that's been talked about for many years, but now that there's been this big um, change in the workforce post-pandemic, do you feel like there's more that could be done? And have the laws that were recently passed done anything to address this as well? Yeah, there's always more that could be done. I, I supported President Biden's, um, uh, what he did on the, to wipe away some of the debt for, college, for, for, for people that had borrowed to go to college. But with that, or some of the activity, some of the things we've done in the CHIPS bill and from the, the Anti-Inflation Act, and that is, um, uh, is, is making sure that, that we are always on the lookout for training workers uh, for whatever jobs they're looking for. So um, one of the things I, I bring in all the college presidents in Ohio every year, uh, 45 or 50 of them, uh, just um, uh, to talk about what we can do together. Uh, and one of those, um, and many of them that show up, 15, well, probably 15 to 20 show up every year from community colleges. And community colleges in Ohio typically have five to 10,000 students each. Um, we've got to make sure that those jobs are often two-year degrees. Uh, so you graduate at 20 or 21 often, although they attract a lot of older students that go back at 28 or 30 or 35. Uh, we need to fund that better. We've got to make sure in Ohio right now with the um, new Intel bill, Intel uh, groundbreaking, which is this Friday, um, they will have 5,000, minimum 5,000 building trades jobs within three years and probably many more than that. Um, we've got to get those apprenticeship programs up and running to be a union carpenter, to be a union electrician, to be a union plumber, a union millwright. Um, uh, uh, you, you've, you've got to have several years of training. Those are those are highly technical, difficult jobs. They pay a, they pay a very decent, good middle class wage. They have good pension benefits. People can retire at 55 on full pensions often, depending on when they start, of course. And we're also doing something a little unusual here. Um, I uh, started back in um, 2012. I started setting up these manufacturing camps. I'd go to local businesses and unions and, and workplace uh, development places. And we um, we run every summer. Uh, and they, It's done locally, but with our sort of um, backdrop and, and assistance. Uh, we have 20 or 30 manufacturing camps for, for kids in the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, sometimes fourth grade, up through seventh or eighth grade, where they'll spend a week, just like going to a day camp, but the day camp is in a manufacturing plant or a service operation so kids can get exposed to this. And I, I will never forget the call, or maybe the second year we did it, from a woman who said, mother who said, you know, my daughters didn't like school and none of this. And She's had so much fun at these manufacturing camps and it's just opened her eyes and I could see her, I could see her become a welder. I could see her wanting to go to community college. I could see her wanting to go to college now and learn some of these mathematical concepts and also just opening up kids and giving, opening up their minds and giving them um, opportunity uh, is, is um, really, really important. And, and, you know, bringing and, and, and beginning to one of the things we've fallen way short, you know, when I, when I said earlier, um, that that we uh, that our that lobbyists in this place got Congress to cut taxes, encouraging companies to go overseas and, and bad trade agreements. One of the important things that we're doing now with these bills is bringing supply chains back, and that mm -hmm. creates opportunity for people that didn't go to college. So you don't you know going to college, your work should pay off, but going through these training programs, your work should pay off too. And that's um, that's our goal across the board. Senator, I wonder if I could ask you, I mean, obviously the, the wage gains ha have been impressive, but obviously inflation has eaten into a lot of that, especially for hourly workers. Um, it's actually eaten it into more. So people are actually on net losing money because of inflation. We thought this might be a really rough midterm environment for Democrats because of that, although inflation does seem to be easing a bit with gas prices coming down, and there's been other issues that seem to be potentially changing the midterm landscape. I wonder what you're hearing, what the mood you're hearing from on the ground in Ohio is in terms of whether workers tend to blame Democrats for this inflation or whether they kind of understand the global um, things that are pushing inflation into their lives. Well, of course, it's it. The party in power always gets hurt some, but I, I think I mean voters are more sophisticated than probably politicians 
<laughs> want to thank and and journalists want to thank from time to time, Damian. But I, I think they're seeing two things. I think they, I mean, two two sort of explanations for this. One is uh, the the new prime minister of Britain. She's inherited ten percent inflation. That's you know much higher than in the United States, and that was from a conservative party. So all this claptrap about government spending the Democrats did cause inflation is just it's just shallow, wrongheaded thinking. But the other thing that people have recognized. And this goes again back to corporate behavior. During the pandemic, we know that four, four industries in particular, the international shipping companies, the meat packers, there are only four meat packers in this country, essentially that control 70 or 80% of the beef production and sales, uh, the drug companies and the oil companies, all four of them uh, took advantage of this pandemic by jacking prices far and away above their costs and their expenses. And that contributed a lot. And I think the fact that Democrats just last month uh, we passed a bill where we took on the oil companies, we took on Wall Street, we took on the drug companies, uh, and uh, and and won. And that's um, that's something that Congress doesn't do often enough, and that's that's going to pay off for the country in terms of substance. It's also going to pay off politically um, in terms of November. So I don't I don't look to um, I, I don't I don't look to to problems in these midterms nearly what people are saying three months ago. And the, the last thing about the supply chains. I just did a roundtable with with auto companies, mostly workers at GM and Chrysler. And Toledo is one of the biggest auto cities, production cities in the country. Um, the auto industry and, and, and the Chrysler plant, because it was so profitable, making the Jeep Wrangler. And I drive up a car, the Jeep Cherokee, that's my wife and I both, um, that, that was made in that plant. We always buy Union and buy Ohio whenever possible. But um, the GM plant, the Chrysler plant was so successful, they moved their chips from all over to this production plant. The GM plant, which makes transmissions in Toledo, shut down intermittently every few weeks. Um, and that's because, again, thinking of selling out American workers, the semiconductors were invented in this country, yet 90% of them are made overseas. Um, and that's because government gave them incentives and tax cuts lobbied by corporate interests and government gave them incentives and trade policy lobbied, lobbied by corporate interests. So they gained and the whole country paid for it, including those workers in Toledo. And if you understand the dignity of work and you care about the dignity of work, you keep fighting for those countries. If you, those, 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 those workers, if you love, if you know, if you love your country, you fight for the people, make it work. It's really simple. But it's hard. I'm no whining here. It's hard because there is so much resistance to our efforts. But but we're going through a period where we're taking them on and we're winning more often than not. Well, we're just about out of time, Senator. But thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for your insight, Damien. It was good, good questions and good conversation. Thanks so much. My pleasure. We'll continue the conversation in a few minutes with our next guest. Stay tuned. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. I'm Saritha Gupta, Vice President of U.S. Programs at the Ford Foundation. I'm a brown woman with salt and pepper hair, wearing glasses and a black colored blouse, sitting in my home office. My pronouns are she and her. Today, I am honored to be joined by Labor Secretary Walsh to discuss efforts to shape an equitable economy in recovery with workers at the center. For too long, the U.S. has measured how many jobs our economy creates, but not whether these jobs have sustained and uplifted the people in them. There are 5 million more job openings than unemployed people, and 64% of people in this country struggle to make ends meet. These stats are magnified when you zoom in on women and workers of color. Secretary Walsh, why is it important to measure good jobs? And what are the Department of Labor approaches for doing so, particularly as the nation implements recent infrastructure investments and the Inflation Reduction Act? First of all, thank you for having me today. And that's an excellent question. Uh, really, one of the ways that we measure good jobs is through the Bureau of Labor Statistics to see how people, where they're going to work, what they're making. We do year-to-date comparison data on it to see how they're doing, uh, and, and we need to continue to do that work. I mean, we're seeing with the infrastructure bill, one thing that President Biden has said from the very beginning, that uh, building back better is important for the future of our economy, and that means creating a pathway into good-paying, middle-class jobs for communities of color, for women, 
for, for veterans, for rural America, uh, and also, quite honest, people with disabilities. Uh, you know, and that hasn't always historically ha- that's never happened, quite honestly. And so we have to be really intentional about how do we make these investments and how do we lift these communities up. So what I will do is be looking at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, number one, seeing what those jobs are, and also really working across cabinet with Secretary Buttigieg in transportation, um, Secretary, you know, Raimondo in, 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 in commerce, uh, Granholm in energy and across the board to make sure that, that we're all in the same, moving in the same direction. Thank you, Secretary Walsh. And to follow up on that, research by CEOs for Corporate Purpose and the Good Jobs Champions Group have both found that wages are not the only critical factor to attract, retain, and upskill frontline workers. What's vital is having a say over working conditions, access to paid time off, uh, effective health and safety protocols, predictable shift schedules, flexibility, plus a sense of purpose and dignity. Can you share what features make a job good and how good jobs can be an antidote to high inflation and recessionary conditions? Well, I certainly think everything you just mentioned makes part of a good job. And when I talk to employers in the country and they're talking about how they're not having a problem recruiting and retaining people, you often look to what they're offering. And it's not, you're absolutely right. It's not just about salary. It's about what are the benefits? Do they have a good, strong paid family leave? Is there flexibility at work? Is there childcare available there? I think a lot of people are looking at that and some companies that are able to retain people. You also see an organizing drive going on in the country. And I was at, when I was at the White House, when I was at the White House for a meeting with a lot of young people that were organizing, you know, the different companies in America. And not one of them started with, we're looking for more money. They all started talking about exactly what you just said, flexibility, workplace, uh, all, all of the things that are important, benefits, all things that are important there. And I think that that's important for us moving forward. It's important for employers, I should say, moving forward on how to attract and retain talent uh in 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 the in the economy in the future and the future is today the future is not way down the road the future is today and what the pandemic has really showed us is that you know the things that we've talked about we'll continue to talk about today is worker shortages it was here before the pandemic pandemics shine a spotlight on it people quitting at higher rates going to other jobs it was there before the pandemic but they they're looking at work-life balance there's a lot that that has to be unpacked here and the companies that are figuring it out moving forward are having great success with it quite honestly i love that point about the future is today um to build on those insights that you've shared we've we have a once in a generation chance to advance economic opportunity and mobility especially for people who have long been left behind as the economy has boomed the federal government is now investing trillions of dollars in economic recovery at the recent good job summit you shared how federal, state, and local governments in partnership with companies and philanthropies like Ford Foundation and the Families and Workers Fund can take bold steps to set standards for good jobs and workforce equity, along with providing incentives when issuing contracts or grants. Can you share examples of how this is happening in practice? Well, you know, when we do when we do the grants, or whether we're working with a workforce development board, or, or working with a city or town, or working with a state, making sure they're measuring the outcomes. I also think it's really important to to work with companies. You know, when we talk about equity and inclusion, um, you know, the federal government and, and governments can, can can put down, you know, suggest certain processes and numbers. But it really is going to take the investment or, or, or the, the will of private companies as well to be intentional about their work and hiring. So the, when we make investments, what we're trying to do is encourage businesses and encourage workers and encourage cities and towns and encourage to, to, to really make sure we're fully inclusive. But my time as mayor of Boston, you know, we, we did a lot of talk, a lot of conversations and, and a lot of work with the Chamber of Commerce. And a lot of companies became really intentional about working with government in using the job training dollars that might be provided, whether it's by the state or the city or the federal government, and then creating those pathways into a career, not just hiring a person of color or a woman to hire any particular job, but create hire, but also give them a pathway of, of mobile, upward mobility within those companies. Thank you, Secretary Walsh. We believe advancing good jobs is an effort to deepen our democracy. 
by listening to workers and ensuring they have a voice over their wages, benefits, and working conditions. It's efforts like the Good Jobs Initiative that will help reimagine our recovery and build an economy with workers at the center. And with that, I'll hand it back to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Damian Paletta, Deputy Business Editor, and I'm excited to continue this conversation about the future of work and economic mobility. Here to join our conversation, I'm joined by David Madland, Senior Fellow to the American Worker Project at the Center for American Progress, and Valerie Wilson, Director of the Economic Policy Institute's Program on Race, Ethnicity, and the Economy. David and Valerie, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having us. I'd also like to thank Vern, who's joining us to provide ASL translation for this segment. And before we get going, I wanted to provide a verbal description of myself for our audience. I'm a white male with brown hair and brown eyes, wearing a blue jacket, sitting in front of a picture of the newsroom. Um, David, could you provide a visual description of yourself, please? Sure, I'm also a white guy with uh, brown hair. I've got a uh, short beard and I'm in my home office right now. Uh, blue jacket as well. Valerie, your turn. I'm a black woman uh, with black hair, shoulderless, length, uh, currently styled in twist. I'm also wearing an olive colored jacket and I'm in my home office, pale blue background. Wonderful. Uh, and Valerie, I wonder if I could start with you. I mean, any conversation about the future of work, we have to talk about the, the present of work. You know, what we've just been through, I feel like the tectonic plates of the economy have shifted. There's so much changing. You know, you focus a lot on the intersection of race and the economy. Where do you see we are right now in terms of race and the economy looking forward with the workforce? Well, you know, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, you can consider where we are in absolute terms or in relative terms. I think a lot of the investments uh, during the pandemic were absolutely critical to having a fast jobs recovery. And that was something that we were able to observe across all demographic groups. But that being the case, we still see disparities across race, ethnicity, and gender, uh, both in terms of unemployment, uh, but also in terms of wages. The two to one black white unemployment gap uh, has been persistent across nearly seven decades of data. Uh, in good and bad economic times at every level of education for men and women and across every age cohort. Uh, so things like that continue to be uh, a problem and a challenge in this economy. And I think it points towards some larger structural factors uh, that remain uh, unaddressed and, and unresolved. And so we didn't see any real progress with that, you know, given the, the labor shortage and a lot of the other issues, we did, you didn't see really much progress in terms of the dislocation in the wages between um, black workers and white workers. Well, again, I, I think we have to consider one, yes, everyone recovered much faster. So it was better off in terms of just the, the harm and the, the pain that a recession can bring about. But then when we look at issues of equity and closing a lot of those persistent gaps, um, we haven't seen a lot of progress. Now, part of the challenge uh, in these times has been on data measurement. And we know that in addition to all the other things that the pandemic disrupted, it also disrupted our ability to accurately measure uh, things like right. wage disparities because job losses were you know, disproportionate. They weren't evenly distributed across groups of workers. David, I wonder if I could ask you, I mean, one of the things that we were, you know, spending a lot of time last year writing about um, was the great resignation, the great reassessment, workers realizing, you know, they don't have to do that job that they don't like when there's other opportunities out there. And, you know, whether that was a temporary blip, um, you know, what, you know, we saw the quits rate, for example, really high. There was like 4 million workers a month who were quitting their job to go do something else. What do we do going forward? What can workers look forward to? Did they miss their moment in terms of, you know, getting that better opportunity, or is there going to be a lot more of that in the kind of next 12 to 24 months? Well, I think it depends because behind those sort of high quit rates and, and moving to other jobs was this moment where the labor market was incredibly tight. And so that means workers had a little bit more power than they might 
normally not not have as much. And so they could move jobs more easily. And if the labor market remains tight for the next couple of months, I would imagine we're going to continue to see um, lots of signs of workers expressing their discontent. You know, there's uh, not only are they switching jobs, but there's lots of strikes. There's union drives. Um, and and so I but on the other hand, there's you know, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates that's squeezing the labor market. And so if we have a recession, I would imagine that we're going to see a lot less of these um, expressions of, of, of worker discontent. The workers are still going to be frustrated. Their wages aren't doing well enough um, and the like, but they just won't have as much power behind them. David, you, you wrote recently about the Inflation um, Reduction Act and how that could create more protections for unions. Obviously, as you mentioned, we're talking a lot more about unions lately because a bunch of different companies are seeing their workers trying to organize. Can you explain to us a little bit about how that would work, how this law might you know, give unions a little bit more stability going forward? Sure. Well, so the Inflation Reduction Act does a lot of things. You know, it raises taxes on uh, wealthy corporations, for example. But the I think the most helpful thing to workers will be these major investments in climate jobs. And unlike many previous government investments, these um, tax breaks that companies are going to get to, you know, do do green job kind of investments. Those jobs have some strings attached. The corporate corporations will get tax breaks only if they do things like, for example, pay the prevailing wage, which is the existing market rate in, in a locality that the workers have been able to negotiate on their own so that, that this uh, isn't driving down standards. And in fact, when those workers are unionized, that's going to be union rate that all employers have to pay so that whether you're union or not, you're going to get a good wage uh, based on companies paying uh, the prevailing wage. Similarly, there's also a registered apprenticeship requirements so that workers can get into these kinds of fields and earn a fair amount as they're doing that and often transition into a union job. There's also Buy America requirements so that, again, the companies aren't just going to be offshoring based on tax breaks. They're actually going to have to bring work uh, onshore. So I think there's a lot that this bill does, um, and it's part of a larger sort of, I think, rethinking of the appropriate role for government in uh, creating that structuring the labor market. For too long, we've had sort of this trickle down idea where if you cut taxes for the rich, that's going to benefit you know workers, and it hasn't worked out. Instead, we, we are seeing a change that I'm happy to talk about a little bit more. But this change, this Inflation Reduction Act is a really key piece of the change going forward. Valerie, I wonder if I could talk to you about that too. Senator Brown was really touting, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act for, you know, bringing jobs back to America. Do you think the Biden administration and Democrats should feel content that they did it, they got this, the economy all figured out, or are there still big holes that we need to be looking at going forward, especially as David mentioned, if we do, you know, enter a possible recession type scenario and people are feeling like their jobs are in jeopardy again? Yeah, I think it's always important to have uh, as the focus of our policy, um, maintaining an economy that is as close to full employment as possible, because we know that the burden of recession and job losses uh, fall disproportionately in communities of color. So the more uh, likely we are to be closer to full employment, to have uh, uh, more jobs being created and more jobs available, and in addition to that, uh, well-paying jobs that do pay a living wage and offer uh, the necessary uh, family supporting benefits, the better things will be. Now, again, that being said, that does not resolve, uh, completely resolve a lot of the underlying uh, structural factors that contribute to uh, racial disparities and how that can affect uh, one's likelihood to get a job, the kind of job uh, they get and the kinds of wages they're offered. I think another part of the discussion that we've heard a lot today uh, comes to the role of unions and, and how yeah. important that can be at helping to narrow those differences because labor contracts, by definition, are intended to be very specific in defining a job's requirements, what uh, people are being paid, the benefits that are available, the requirements for advancement. And that really helps to minimize a lot of the discretion, uh, discretionary uh, choices that, that contribute to discriminatory outcomes. 
Well, let's talk about that value a little bit more. I mean, it's, you know, in Washington, in the country, as the um, control of the White House changes, it seems like the country can kind of get whipsawed back and forth in terms of labor policy. And we see this surge in popularity of unions now. Do you think that's sustainable? And, you know, obviously, for example, with Starbucks, there's 9,000 stores, you know, a couple hundred of them maybe have organized, but are we going to see enough progress in terms of these efforts to really, you know, change companies and change the way companies treat workers? I think a lot of that will depend on the direction that policy goes. Uh, for example, the, the PRO Act passed the House and has, uh, you know, so far not gained any ground in terms of Senate support. And, you know, at the heart of that is really supporting workers' rights uh, to organize and join a union and to create some some real penalties uh, for employers uh, who violate those rights. And so I think the will among people will continue to be strong and continue to have a desire uh, to join a union as people have recognized how important it is for them to uh, have some uh, bargaining power and some say in their work conditions uh, in addition to pay and benefits. Uh, but we really need supportive policies uh, to help um, enforce the rights of people to join unions and to organize and bargain collectively. David, I know you talked a little bit about that, but I'd like to just revisit it because it's so interesting, you know, considering the, what the Fed is doing in, in terms of raising interest rates. You mentioned that the unionization efforts might slow a bit if workers get a little more nervous about their leverage. Um, is that something that could play out later this year, or do you see the momentum continuing until we really see? I mean, obviously, we're getting incredibly strong numbers month after month in terms of you know new hires. So it doesn't seem like the air is coming out of the labor market yet. Oh, no, I think the labor market's doing fairly well right now, especially when you consider all that the Fed is doing to uh, try to you know squeeze out inflation, which is harming the economy. The question about what's going to happen to labor, unions and, and workers and their desires to join unions, I think, you know, as Valerie highlighted, there's longstanding and significant desire for workers to join unions. But unfortunately, our public policy makes that very, very hard for workers actually to get what they want. You know, two thirds of workers like unions and more than half would like to join a union if they could, but just 6% are in uh, members of, of private sector labor unions because the law makes it very hard and corporations have lots of power to prevent workers from joining. So the few things that are tilting the that give the workers a little bit more ability to join, you know, the tight labor market, President Biden really also, you know, even the labor law is very weak, but his uh, administration is enforcing the labor laws on the books much, much better than previous administrations. And so that helps. The other thing that I think in the future is this public support for unions incredibly high right now. It's also being driven very much by young people. And so that I think will continue to hold that this youngest generation today is the most pro-union of any previous generation. So I think we could really see uh, a longstanding effort and a fight to, to rebalance the economy so that workers and employers are on a more equal footing. Valerie, I wonder if I could ask you about, you know, how businesses have changed or said they were going to change um, during and through the pandemic. Obviously, after the killing of George Floyd in May of 2020, a lot of companies came forward and said, we're going to do more, we're going to do better to try to bring more people of color, more diverse voices, more diverse perspectives into our companies. And, you know, now we're two years beyond that. I wonder if you've seen companies kind of look at have that in the rearview mirror or if you've seen the progress continued in that way because it's going to impact the future of these companies in a beneficial way in their view you know i think we have yet to really see what the full long-term outcome of those sorts of promises will be i think there were some initial efforts to at least uh signal or at least make a show or an effort uh, to address racial disparities in the workforce, uh, at least in terms of um, hiring people, or at least in terms of thinking about how you can diversify your workforce at all levels. Um, but again, I, I think a lot of what we've seen has been in a few places uh, that are much more visible than others. And I have yet to see 
see in the, the larger uh, nationally representative data that there are any observable changes uh, as of in terms of really changing the, the demographics and the structure of the workplace. David, I, one of the, you know, we're talking about the future of work, but also economic mobility, which is, you know, this amazing concept, but it's a little bit hard to, you know, put a finger on sometimes. It's one thing to get a job, but the kind of American dream is to work your way up. And so I wonder if you've seen any changes in economic mobility in this, um, we can't really call it a post-pandemic economy because I had COVID like a month ago. So we're still in the pandemic, but you know, what is, what are you seeing in terms of changes in economic mobility right now that we maybe didn't see before the pandemic? Ooh, that's a hard question to measure because this idea of mobility, of course, takes some data over time. And what we, right. you know, we know that that economic mobility over the recent decades has not been very good, especially when you compare it to, to uh, prior periods in the United States. And my hunch is that not a lot has changed right now. There are some, certainly some people who've done quite well with this really tight labor market who switched to better paying jobs that give them a career. But um, you know the things that have changed, so our economy has rarely been at full employment over the past 40 years. This is one of the rare moments. Um, and we would need a continuous period of full employment as well as a lot of other policy changes to I think really uh, enabled workers to have the kind of mobility we want to see. It's possible that could happen because as I was highlighting, not only we have a tight labor market now, but President Biden, I think, is really starting to change the way policymaking has been done. He's much more pro-worker than previous administrations and really rejecting this full trickle-down idea that if you just benefit corporations and the wealthy, that'll somehow benefit workers. Instead, making direct investments in workers with not only education, but these kind of, you know, if you invest in, if a company gets a subsidy, they need to pay good wages um, and also efforts to ensure workers can join unions. And so I think there is a chance that mobility improves uh, significantly if these policy changes really take hold and really change what future uh, policymakers do and the economy stays uh, at full employment. Valerie, can I ask you a similar question related to economic mobility? Are we seeing any progress in terms of economic mobility for women and, and workers of color, or is it too soon to really have anything beyond anecdotal examples at this point? Yeah, I really think it's too soon to you know, really know where things are moving in terms of economic mobility. Uh, again, because uh, women of color in particular uh, were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic uh, both in terms of just outright job losses because of the concentration of losses in industries uh, that employed a larger share of women, uh, but also because of the disruptions that came about with um, school closures and, yeah. and women having the responsibility of providing uh, more care and having to take time out of the workforce. So all of those factors uh, are contributors to re reduce mobility uh, for women of color in particular. And as we're just starting to uh, you know, get to a point where we've had several months of consistent and, and robust job growth and, and people are continuing to return to work, I just think it'll take more time to really understand uh, the full effects of the pandemic. And, and depending on how long we're able to continue in this path of, of economic growth and recovery, we'll have a lot to do with how quickly those uh, families and households recover. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the, you know, the dark cloud of inflation and how that's, um, you know, laid on top of this. I mean, David, you talked about full employment. You know, we we're at three point seven percent or three point eight percent unemployment, incredibly low number. Uh, you know, we had three hundred thousand something new jobs um, added last month, which was low considering the the prior months. But inflation kind of just, you know, is this wet blanket on top of the wage gains. Can you talk a bit about how inflation is factoring into economic mobility in the future of work? Are people having to, um, you know, work more in order to just offset these higher costs of housing? Um, you know, gas obviously prices have come down, but they're still high, and groceries, things like that. How does inflation factor into all this? Yeah, so inflation right now is, you know, uh, well, other than these sort of blip momentary blips, but over the past year or so, it's been significantly higher than 
workers' wage gains. And that means there's less money for rent, food, healthcare, and all, the, all of that. And that, of course, hinders workers' ability to get ahead. Um, the, I think the question is what's going to happen next, because most likely these inflationary conditions are really being driven by COVID's impact on the supply chain. And then, as Senator Brown mentioned, that's given some corporations some, some uh, significant ability to, to use their power and generate record profits. Um, and so we have the Federal Reserve then squeezing, trying to squeeze out inflation, but really they are not necessarily, that's their job is to reduce inflation, but they don't control supply chains. They don't control uh, corporate profits. What they can do is raise interest rates and that's gonna uh, indirectly weaken the economic recovery. So um, that if, whether they, they win out, uh, the Fed, Fed you know, actions really cause a recession, that would of course weaken mobility. But I think my hunch and my hope is that the labor market is quite strong with creation of jobs and that can continue, especially because I think the, a lot of the supply chain problems are going to resolve themselves. Um, and so the Fed won't have to you know, be true, too draconian. So if that, if that path happens, then yeah, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic about uh, workers getting ahead because policymaking is changing and has started to do some of the things it needs to do to, to put workers first. I just have time for one more question, Valerie. I wonder if I could direct it to you. You know, in the conversations you're having with worker groups now, are they hopeful about the future, excited about this new dynamic, or are they kind of apprehensive about what we've been talking about, you know, the possibility of a recession and maybe losing the progress that they've made over the past 12 months? You don't think anybody's ever excited to, about the prospect of a, a recession. But I think that there are often, um, you know, disconnections between what we as economists see in terms of just looking at the, the data and the numbers and interpreting that. Again, we've talked a lot about the fact that the labor market is, is pretty strong. But the way that people experience the economy um, is impacted by inflation and people feeling like they can't get ahead, like they you know, are having to make difficult trade-offs uh, between things. Uh, that they need for their their family. So I think when you throw on top of that uh, talk of a recession, whether or not the data indicates that there's any reason to be concerned about a recession now, apart from Fed's policy on tightening interest rates uh, aggressively, um, I think people just are still a little uncertain about what the future is going to look like. Well, that's all the time we have. David and Valerie, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.